Welcome to 24 The People, a podcast that harnesses the power of personal stories and shares meaningful work within 24 minutes. My name is Sophia Sokolovsky, and I'm your host. I recently attended a design and diplomacy event that Meridian International held in honor of the new Rodarte exhibition at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. There, I met Hildy Couric, the founder of Artemis Strategies, a boutique consultancy agency that serves clients such as Condé Nast, The Met, Nordstrom, and The Skim. I interviewed her at her beautiful headquarters in New York. During this episode, hear Hildy talk about her path to working with both President Obama and Anna Wintour, how she found her voice at a young age, and advice she has for every young person. Let's start with you telling us about your family and where you're from. Sure. My name is Hildy Keurig Bernstein. I grew up in Midtown Manhattan. Spent my whole life here basically until I went to college. I went to Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Very different than the mean streets of Midtown. Yes. But I love that. I needed something different to show, you know, I think it was really valuable to see that there is a whole lot of life outside of New York City and it really forced me to meet and confront people who were very different than me, who had different life experiences than me. I mean, I tell the story that, you know, in New York, I think everyone is very aware of different religions and very educated for the most part on the kind of melting pot that is New York City. And I went to Vanderbilt and I met really lovely people who are some of them still my great friends who said to me that I was the first Jewish person they had ever met. Really? And this wow. was 1995. How did you respond? I mean, they were coming from a place of love and yes. in genuine inquisitiveness. You sort of said, okay, wow. Yeah. And I think for me, and they didn't know what Passover was, and they had never had challah before. or And I think it also forced me to make a deeper connection with my religion because I sort of took it for granted here. You know, we all knew what Ramadan was, and we all knew what Hanukkah was, right. and we all knew what Easter was. And I think there, it just sort of forced me to understand my religion more so I could explain it, and also was such a great eye-opener for me ahead of politics to see that there's a whole lot of diversity in this country. Yes, so no, absolutely. that was important. I'm the only child of two working parents. I'm an only child, too. We're special. <laughs> I'm the only child of two working parents uh, who lived in New York. My mother still lives in the apartment I grew up in. And I learned, I would say, everything about my voice and my confidence from them. Went to college, went to D.C., came back and forth, met my husband here. He's from New York as well. And we live in Brooklyn with two children, one a boy who's eight and a girl who's four. Your career has expanded across the political realm and design and media and now into the philanthropic landscape. Is there a common thread that ties each one of these together for you? What tied politics and my work at Vogue and my communications work was the idea of advocating for something and advocating for something that had legacy or history. And I've been very lucky. And I think the realm of politics is about history. You know, there's always someone who came before you since this republic was founded, who in some way has done your job. And that gives you a sense of responsibility and a sense of respect for the process. And you're advocating on behalf of a candidate or a cause that you believe in in the public service sphere. I was really excited to come to Vogue because Vogue has such a deep history. We celebrated our 125th anniversary a couple of years ago. I believe in things that have weight 
and that have a purpose and a mission. There are a lot of people who think Vogue is trivial or silly, but when you read it and you understand its history and legacy and the things it's advocated for and the positions it's taken and the female writers that it's championed and models that it's championed and designers that it's championed, I think it really carries a lot of weight within its world. And so to me, it was a similar type of skill set and I, it drew me to Vogue. Now with Artemis, I think that there's a moment that we're combining them both, that more than ever, the world is so divided and so polarized and, you know, you can have an opinion and share it with billions of people instantly, that companies need to be smarter about how they advocate for the positions they care about because consumers are watching. And it's more important than ever that they talk about it. Companies are a force for good. They just need to be able to share that with their consumer in a more relevant way. Mm -hmm. In part, you just answered the next question mm -hmm. that I had for you, which was you transitioned from politics to Vogue. How did you make that decision? But I'm wondering also, what were some of the specific factors that you weighed? It wasn't leaving politics and going to Vogue. It was first just leaving politics. Mm -hmm. I was very burnt out. I would say my husband is too. I had worked for the president since 2000, end of 2006. We were talking about 2013 now. So what is that? Almost nine years, yes. probably more like eight. There's nothing as grueling as a presidential campaign. I had done three of them by that point. I had a young baby. More positively, I felt like I had accomplished everything I had set out to accomplish in political fundraising. There was nothing left for me to do in terms of personal fulfillment. I'm proud to say that the happiest and most fulfilling professional moment in my life was working on the 2008 campaign for Barack Obama. So I really felt like I had done it all and I'd left it all out on the field, as they say. So I, and I was very burnt out. I have this personal view that life is a constant series of forks in the road and you have to be in the right position for the fork to materialize. Sometimes you don't see those moments coming, but when you can see them coming, you need to stop and really examine it and look. And that was to me a big fork in the road moment. I could have stayed in Washington. He had just won a second term. My husband was at the White House. Or I could follow my gut and say, I don't know what's going to be in New York, but it's time to leave on a high note. I mean, I guess I should say it's worth saying my father died in 2012. And so that was, all, we were very close. It was also a real sort of fork in the road moment to say, I need to figure out what I want to do with my life and be happy. And that's what, you know, and kind of being home with my mom and with my in-laws and close by and wanting to raise my kids near them was like, you know, there's really, why are we waiting? So we came home, I took three months off, which I saved money to be able to do it. And if you can ever do it, I highly recommend it. It's I'd never, I've worked since I was 16. It's like, so freeing. I, I really did nothing. And what was your first job that you had when you were 16? Oh, I worked at restaurants in the summer. I was an au pair. It all transfers over into what you're doing now too, that work ethic. I think so. I think there's nothing like politics to give you a good work ethic, but yes, it was just always ingrained in me that I had to work. So we, I take the three months off, which is jarring for the first two weeks. And then you realize how great it is. And I saw a career coach part shrink, part motivator. And he really forced me to look at my skill set mm -hmm. and see how they could transfer to other industries because I had been so myopically focused on yes. one. I quickly realized that I wanted to do either finance 
like investor relations, communications, or be a chief of staff. I've been lucky to have a relationship with Anna Winter since 2007 when he, he, she was supporting President Obama. I called on her for advice, and she was very generous with her time. And we would talk about different roles and different things. And then basically she said, I think you should apply for the job. She had someone call me and they said, Anna wants you to apply. And I was like, you know, I know nothing about communications. And they were like, yeah, but you know her and we'll teach you the rest. And I transitioned with a really incredible person, a friend, Megan Salt, who preceded me in the job. And she basically took me under her wing for an intensive three-week training course. And it was fabulous. And I sort of flew without a net. It sounds like one of those situations where they knew that you were skilled especially at learning, and they really wanted you for you and your personality. I was very flattered that they saw that in me. I think Anna's a great spotter of talent. You know what I mean? She sort of takes risks on people that she knows and trusts. And so I was happy to be a beneficiary of that. Did the career shrink say something in particular that really resonated with you? He forced me to write a um, mission statement for myself sort of forcing me to really, and then refine it and refine it and refine it and forcing myself to look at not just who I was with this collection of experiences, but really who I wanted to be. And I think I've never allowed myself the luxury of thinking about who I wanted to be. It was always climbing the ladder and going to the next job in development, in fundraising, in politics. Like What's nice about, so to some degree, the political realm is there's very clear ladders of development. So I had never really allowed myself to be like, well, what else do I want to do? Yeah. Well, I mean, I always said I wanted to be a food stylist, but like that was, um, <laughs> so this allowed me to do that. And it really was a very freeing exercise. Can you speak to the influences, both intended and unintended, that design has on diplomacy? This was something that you spoke about briefly at Meridian. Yeah. Uh, the Meridian event. It was interesting to be on that panel, obviously. I'm a big fan of Ram Gavan and Meredith and I have worked closely together for years and they had a very different perspective. I didn't really work in diplomacy. I was always on the political side of things. But I think that what I tried to say there is you can feel that your clothing or your statement, you can, you can say, I just wore this to like, I didn't wear this outfit today. With any, type of, <laughs> with any type of meaning yeah. involved, right? I just was like, oh, I want something comfortable and I have, you know, a lunch with someone today. But I didn't come with any message. But I think in today's world, like anything, you have to understand that someone may infer a message from it. What I mean by diplomacy, like you may look at my pants and be like, oh, she's wearing leather. Is that real leather? What, I, I'm, a, you know, I'm against leather. Like, and you may infer something about me because of that. I just think you have to be conscious today of other people's impressions. You can weight them or not weight them, but you shouldn't ignore it. What are some of the misconceptions that you have come across when it comes to fashion and design, especially having worked in Washington, D.C.? I think it's changing. I think fashion in Washington is definitely changing. It changed with the Obama administration, and it changes every cycle as, you know, new people come in, and I think, you know, they bring a different perspective. I think that fashion is often dismissed as frivolous. There's caring about fashion, which can be dismissed as frivolous. There's luxury fashion, which is somewhat unattainable for a majority of people. But there's also aspiration, which I think Vogue has always championed. And more than ever, fashion has become in some ways more democratic because of the ability 
to be direct to consumer. But I think price point always is always a factor. I think the misconceptions, though, belittle the economic impact of the global fashion industry in terms of the amount of women who are in the supply chain that we need to protect, the lack of women as fashion CEOs that we should be promoting, and the voice that American fashion, I obviously am biased toward American fashion, but that fashion overall has to speak to its consumer. You see someone like Alessandra Michele at Gucci or... You see models like Gigi Hadid or Carly Kloss who have massive followings now and audiences mm-hmm. to be able to speak to them directly about issues that affect them or causes that they care about. And I also think you should have to credit Mrs. Obama. I mean, I know we talked about that on the panel, too, for her incredible championing of American fashion and for saying, I enjoy wearing these clothes and I believe that you can mix high and low and showing that kind of breaking a little bit of the mold of the traditional first lady. And I think that that's done wonders for American fashion and then fashion overall and globally. You can dismiss fashion, I guess, in your head or say, but you shouldn't ignore it. Did you or do you find that you sometimes face adversity in terms of people passing judgments? Especially when you're working in a very tough environment. You mean in Washington? In Washington and elsewhere. People ask me if I discovered fashion when I came to Vogue, and I always say that, you know, I always had a healthy shopping habit before I came to Vogue. I just sort of was open to a lot of new opportunities and new worlds. What I mean by opportunities is, like, I just learned a whole lot more about designers and about process. There was just a bigger array. You are a naturally born leader, it seems, and you've served as the National Finance Director of the National Democratic Committee. Director of Communications for Vogue, you now lead Artemis Strategies. How did you find your voice, especially at the start of your career? How were you able to make people take you seriously? I was very lucky. As I mentioned, my parents were incredible forces in my life for confidence, and they really supported me, and my opinion was always valued. And But I would say early in my career, I worked in the Office of Legislative Affairs at the end of the Clinton administration, and I was very lucky to work with incredible senior leaders in that office who valued young people and who supported us. And, you know, very early on, one of my roles, and, you know, we were assistants, staff assistants, which is like the lowest you can be on paid salary there. And we worked in legislative affairs, so we had to watch all the activity. I was on the Senate side, so I had to watch C-SPAN 24 hours a day and and catalog the activity in the Senate. And you would write nightly reports on like the bills that passed, the things that happened, the motions that got tabled. You know, you just sort of catalog that. So you learn quickly how to do that. And that went to senior leaders around the White House. But every week, the office was responsible for writing a weekly report for the president. I, as a staff assistant, was in charge of collating everything from the Senate for the week and then adding my like Senate section in. And I had a great, wonderful boss, um, Charles Brain, who ran Legislative Affairs. And every Friday evening, he'd call me up and we'd go through my section. He was a really natural born teacher. And he would say things like, well, this is going on the president's desk. Do you think that it's as good as it could be? And, you know, that always forces you to think, well, I don't know. Take a second second look. Maybe I could have said this more concisely. I had the ability to learn from him. And I think it's because I had such great teachers and I learned how very quickly to respect them, but to listen. And then when I did it and there was feedback and it was positive, 
that's the confidence I needed to assert my voice. Working for the people I've worked for, I've been very lucky in the position that they want to hear my opinion. And if it's not theirs, that's okay. It's all in the delivery is my point. Like the art of saying no is something that I always feel like I've cultivated and learned how to do. You're it's not something people struggle with. Yeah, I know it is. A majority of their life. As I know. And they want to be pleasers. We all want to be pleasers. Yes. It's in our nature to want to please everyone. Saying no is all in the delivery. You're never going to go in to the president and be like, you're totally wrong. But if you're confident in your experience and in the knowledge that you're delivering, you know, like when I was leading fundraising for the DNC and there was some situation, I, we were talking to the president and he had an assumption about someone. And I said, you know, and I always, with all due respect, sir, actually, in my last three interactions with that person, it was actually X. Really? Why? This is what I believe. I would recommend we handle it this way. It's that dialogue. It's that dialogue. Again, with all due respect, I actually disagree for this and this. You have to be able to back it up with facts and with research and with diligent work. And then in the end, especially when you work for someone, it's their decision. And if you say that to them and say, of course, it's your decision and I'll do whatever you decide. But here is my reasoning. I just think it's the ability to state your belief based on your experience. You know, I would never go to a CEO of a financial company and be like, you should definitely not short that stock. Like, I don't know anything about that. But I did know about political fundraising. And I do did know about, you know, the communications landscape at Vogue. So I felt that I had the knowledge base to be able to make that polite, respectful comment. How do you maintain your focus and commitment on a day-to-day -day basis <laughs> with all the ups and downs? It's hard. I don't always. I don't. I think my husband would tell you I come home, especially over the last year and a half since starting Artemis and just come on like it's all gonna fail it's gonna fail I'm never gonna do it I'll never get another client or I'll ne I'm not it's not gonna work you know I mean of course of course or god I had such a bad day we all it all happens and then hopefully you can lean on people who care about you a friend or another colleague or a spouse or partner and have them sort of prop you up for that you know, time period. And that to me sees me through to when I feel good. And I'm like, it's working, it's clicking, yay. You know, yes. so it's really ups and downs. Can you briefly give me an overview of Artemis? Sure. And also tell me what the most rewarding experience doing this has been. Oh, I founded Artemis because I looked at the landscape and I think the communications is changing. And as I said, you know, there's report after report that states how the consumer behavior is changing and consumers are spending, are being more and more discerning about where they spend their money and their time. And they're consistently looking to spend them with companies that have values and state their values and are good actors in the marketplace. I felt that my political experience and my consumer experience was unique and could help companies do that. The citation I use is, you know, I think right after the president made his decision about ending DACA, I was on LinkedIn and I saw that Bob Iger and Tim Cook both made proactive statements about, you know, in support of dreamers. 
And I was so surprised because even five, six, seven years ago, you would not see publicly traded huge companies taking CEOs, taking a stance on an issue that could be controversial. I mean, I certainly agreed with their stances and I'm proud they did it, but it affects a relatively small number of people. And I was so proud of that. But I also noticed that that's a big change and shift in strategy and also in corporate behavior toward consumers. Upon further research, both of those companies have employees who may or may not fall under that category. So it was so interesting to me. They were both doing it for their internal morale of their company, external to so consumers could see that they took a stand and cared about something. And I felt like those, it was great leadership. Companies like that are rewarded they, and yes. should be rewarded yes. by loyalty, support, amplification. So it's a necessary thing to do in this time period. And I wanted to help companies do that. What was the best piece of advice you ever received? Did you follow it? And what advice would you offer, especially to young women who are finding their footing? The best piece of advice I received is actually probably the one that I would pass on also. Someone gave it to me early on in my career, and then it was reiterated to me by a former colleague, Darian Page, who I worked with at the White House, who was speaking to a group of mainly young women too and it's it's so true it's say yes say yes to opportunities even if you're not sure where it's going to take you or even if you're not you know even if it sounds really boring or really hard do it because you just never know and I sort of still employ that today like if a colleague asks you to stay late and help them with a project say yes especially early on in your career so do it you don't know what that you know where that's going to go if a boss asks you to take on a new task Say yes. Don't just think about, you know, oh, should I get paid more? Yes, but do that first and open yourself up to every opportunity that comes. And I would say that I recently decided to relive that advice at Artemis. And I was thinking about, you know, the type of clients I'm going after. And there's definitely what I want to do, which is to help these companies deepen their civic engagement, tell their value story better. I want to do that. And I will do that. And I am doing that with certain people, but but if another opportunity comes to me that feels different, don't just dismiss it because you never know where these things are going to lead. And I just think it's still true today. Your work is extremely impressive. And thank you for all the contributions that you're making. And thank thank you you for saying yes to this interview. Well, thanks for asking me. I appreciate (laughs) it. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much. You can find Hildy and Artemis Strategies on Twitter at Hildy Couric and Artemis Strat, respectively. That's at H-I-L-D-Y-K-U-R-Y-K and A-R-T-E-M-I-S-S-T-R-A-T. Subscribe to 24 The People wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along on Instagram and Twitter at the number 24 The People. My name is Sofia Sokolovsky, and until next time, 